everybody. Welcome again to Trail Tales. This is your host, Tom Funk. Thanks for joining me today as I continue my hike across Michigan's Upper Peninsula. We are now entering into Chippewa County, and Chippewa County was named for the Native Americans that lived in the area. Home to the first white settlement in the Midwest, Chippewa County is also known to have hosted the last of the British forces in the United States. History about the War of 1812, you ought to check out the history of Drummond Island and uh, how long it took us to boot those red coats out of our country. Anyways, let's get to the hike. It is August the 20th, 1998. Today is a zero day. So I'm actually going to cover two days uh, today. I'm going to cover today, August 20th, and tomorrow, August 21st. So zero day again is I don't hike. Um, I am actually ahead of schedule. And I have to wait for some friends to catch up with me so uh, we're able to spend time together. So I am camping at the Lower Falls Campground, Taquamanov Falls State Park. Um, there was some rain in the morning. Uh, the high for the day reached 78 and low of 62. When asked by an anthropologist what the Indians called America before the white man came, an Indian simply replied, Ours. Setting up a bivouac to stay dry is an important skill to have, as we have found out on this trip. And I'm realizing that I do good work listening to buckets of rain pour down through the trees above me onto my rain fly. So I am nestled on a small dome of soil. My whole existence is perched a mere six inches higher than the surrounding ground. My head is an inch or two higher than uh, my feet. And all the rain runs off the rainfly, either towards my feet or to my side. No matter where the water goes, it does not dampen my equipment or my spirit. Currently, the rain is my prison, and I am forced to hunker down and read my book. There are a few people moving around this rainy morning. My tenting neighbors uh, piled into the minivan hours ago. Jennifer and Leon are in their RV, and my yard sale neighbors are in their giant cabin tent. It's amazing how fast you can read a book when it's raining. I finished off Copernicus and started to read about Greek and Roman mythology. Mythology is one of those subjects in high school I neglected to study, and I am finding myself re-educating myself on this topic as well as other topics I've also blew off, you know, like English. Blowing off English was a serious mistake. I am still not at a level I need to be in my working my profession. Uh, for the first several years at my job, I constantly had to have my work proof uh, read because, well, I suck at English. And with time, practice, and grammar check on the computer, I feel I've come a long way and I see less and less red ink when I let my boss proof my work. Hard to believe I am a published author. And like I always say, it's the ideas in my head that count. And that's why I hire editors. By noon, the park was about one quarter full. At three o'clock, the next wave of campers have crammed into the park. The rain subsided, enough for me to pull out of my cocoon and spend some time with the neighbors, Leon and Jennifer. Shooting the breeze was the order of the day. And come to find out, Leon is a pro golf, uh, pro golf pro, well, a golf pro, I guess, for Moore's Bridge Country Club in Portage. There, he worked with a friend of mine named Adam. One degree of separation. Man, it is a small world. And Adam is the 
brother-in-law to Sylvia. So Sylvia's sister Cheryl married Adam. So there you go. Small world. I gave them directions on how to find pictured rocks and what road to take. And with his Ram 4x4, I am confident he will not have a problem staying unstuck. If all else fails, hopefully their dog Kala will nose her way home for them. I cruised by Brent and Betty's site in the early afternoon, and they were not there. Uh, so the order of the day became to update the journal and just generally putts around. Scott the Naturalist showed up and gave me a copy of the park newsletter called The Compass, and in it was a superfluity super of information about Tequamnon, the river, and the park. I tell him how long it took me to walk the trail yesterday, and later I realized I forgot to ask him about the trail conditions. Amazingly, this area averages over 200 inches of snowfall a year, and the snowmelt and accompanying rainfall collect in the Great Manistique Swamp and account for 214 billion gallons of water a year flowing over the waterfall. Peak flow is in April, uh, when its golden color from the tannic acid from rotting cedars and tamaracks flow over the nearly billion-year-old sandstone. 40,000 acres in size, Tequamon hosts about 15 moose in the park, Ojibwa Indians had a settlement at the river mouth. However, trapping beaver in 1670 accounted for one of the first known times this area was settled by the white man. Since then, it was in 1890, and that was the peak for logging, mostly white pine and red pine in this area. One billion board feet of lumber was shipped out of the UP in the year, uh, every year in the 1890s. And from 1900 to 1930, Tequamon saw many fires burn depleted forests, until 1947, Tequamon Falls State Park was founded. The tremendous amount of destruction did not hamper the river's ability to naturally clean itself over time, uh, for the river seems to be as clean as it ever has been. Touching base with Don, my information is I would be picked up by Kim and Dave or Belinda, whomever saw me first as I was hiking south, and I'd probably be on M123. I would be seeing them in two days, and uh, I told them I will go no further than Three Lakes National Forest Campground. Later, visiting Brent and Betty, I enjoyed some dump cake, as they called it, which is a sweet dessert while sharing stories of my trip. Capped off the night by spending some more time with my neighbors from Portage, enjoying adult beverages. Hey, we haven't had a report from Don in a while, so here we go. This is from Don. Well, the end is in sight. Tom is at the Lower Falls campground, and he was going to spend a night at the Upper Falls, but he got there early, and the forecast for today was bad, so he had a stout at the brew pub. Yes, in the park, he says, and continued on to Lower Falls. He's going to lay over tonight, then get back on the road tomorrow. He figures that he'll be in St. Ignace on Wednesday. He says that he hasn't lost much weight, but he did lose several inches around his waist. Two quotes from Tom. The first one, you're not lost if you don't care where you're going. And the other one is, get out of your car and make your own adventure. And I would like to note that I, for some reason, thought you could camp at Upper Falls, and uh, obviously you cannot, and I made my way to Lower Falls. So um, there you go. All right, let's move on to August 21st, 1998, and we're going to make our way down to the Rivermouth Unit. Uh, today we're going to hike uh, 16 and a half miles, and that's going to bring me up to 376.3 miles. And the weather today, high of 78, low of 60, cloudy, and uh, it's humid, but it becomes clear. Bugs? Well, I'm walking swampy areas, so my bug factor actually reached a 4 today. In the trail conditions, mostly sandy. I walked a sand road and a little bit of an asphalt highway. 
Beyond the wall of the Unreal City, beyond the security fences topped with barbed wire and razor wire, beyond the asphalt beltings of the superhighways, beyond the cemented bank sides of our temporarily stopped and mutilated rivers, beyond the lies that poison the air, there is another world waiting for you. It is the old, true world of the deserts, the mountains, the forests, the islands, the shores, the open plains. Go there. Be there. Walk gently and quietly deep within it. And then may your trails be dim, lonesome, stony, narrow, winding, and only slightly uphill. May the wind bring rain for the slick rock potholes 14 miles on the other side of yonder blue ridge. May God's dog serenade your campfire. May the rattlesnake and the screech owl amuse your reverie. And may the great sun dazzle your eyes by day and the great bear watch over you at night. And that is from Edward Abbey in his Beyond the Wall. On foot today, I will venture on a large chunk of trail. I am certain that hardly a soul to the uh, visiting the parks ever tries. The Rivermouth Trail itself starts in the lower campground, and I am currently in the upper campground, and we'll walk downhill to near the falls, and I'll hike this trail, which will take me to M123, where I have to turn south, cross the river, and enter the Rivermouth Unit Campground. Across the threshold towards the lower campground at 8.15 a.m., where a family coming from the other direction stopped me. Are you hiking the trail to Rivermouth? The father of the family asks. Yes, sir. Do you know where the trailhead is? Yeah, it's right over there, and he points just down the path where I can see the river. We hiked it yesterday. It's in pretty good shape. Really? You hiked the whole thing? I asked, because for a family of children, 16 miles is a long way. Well, we walked in from the campground and turned around after walking several miles. Somebody just went through with a four-wheeler, knocking back the vegetation and pruning. Then we entered from the Snug Harbor Road entrance. We drove our vehicle all the way back as far as we could until we found a swamp. But don't worry, there's a bridge, and be ready to walk across Beaver Dam as part of your trail. How far did you walk in from there, I ask? About a mile or two. After the Beaver Dam, it's on a two-track. I think there was a bridge linking the two at one time. Sir, thank you very much. I've been trying to get the park staff to tell me what the heck the conditions were, and they did not know, I say gratefully. I walk forward, and the sign says 11.7 miles to her mouth. My intel says 16 miles. I guess I'll find out who's correct, the, the State Park or the North Country Trail Association, which is technically part of the National Park Service. I exit the asphalt and enter the woods, mostly second growth, red and jack pine. Complimenting the ground are bracket ferns sprouting everywhere, along with sand covered in mosses and lichens. Best of all, no humans. I enter my trance, trudging forwards, enjoying the sights and sounds. My feet hurt more so than usual, and I am finding myself taking several breaks. During this particular five-minute break, I smell a strong, musky odor. Bear. Or is it something else? Something fetid has been through here of late. The tang permeates the puny valley I am in. I decide this is not a good area to hang out, and I maintain my hike. But the smell persists for several hundred feet until the trail takes me up and out of the valley onto a ridge and away from the smell. High on a ridge, I could see to my north through the grove of jack pine several small lakes. Not a house or human for miles, only the resident waterfowl, and they are none too pleased of my presence. I work my way through some blueberries, making too much noise, and I flush my quarry to safer waters. 
After the view, I find myself climbing to the top of a large knob. Reaching the summit, I see four evenly spaced cement feet with steel support sprouting about two inches above the ground. This used to be the location of a lookout tower, and the view is grand, but I cannot see the river that is less than a mile away due to all the fog. Michigan's first lookout tower was built in 1912 on a hill near Lewiston in the Lower Peninsula. By 1924, over 100 towers were used to spot forest fires. The requirement for being a spotter is a knowledge of the local area and good eyesight. By the 1980s, airplanes replaced the hundreds of metal towers since they could take in more territory and pinpoint the precise location of a fire, directing firefighting crews to the exact location. This tower, like most of the others, were sold for scrap to anyone who could get a truck to these relics of a day gone by. Clouds are hanging quite low and cover the vast expanse of forest for miles. To my northeast, I can see the Whitefish Bay about 10 miles away. I can see the shore running from a north-south direction, turning at Tequamanon Bay and heading in an east-west direction. If it were not for the clouds, I could see Canada. Lunch is going to be a long affair, so I planned until I start to hear rustling in the leaves down the hill in the valley below. Every organism, no matter how small, sends sounds that make me think there is a brontosaurus walking nearby. It could be a squirrel, it could be a bear. Whatever it may be, it causes me to pack up my stuff and to start walking again. The trail is wonderfully marked with blue diamonds and blazes every 50 feet or so. Someone has driven through here recently on a four-wheeler, matting down the vegetation and cutting away any deadfall. If a four-wheeler can get through here, I can too. I come to two tracks, both labeled with the photocopy inside a plastic book report cover to protect it from the elements. Both read to M123 and gives a distance, both which said, will not loop back to Rivermouth or Lower Falls. My third intersection was in the middle of an open meadow. Sand and grasses are the dominant abiotic and biotic entities. Held up by an old cook stove, a signpost draws me down the trail. The sign reads, obviously, Old Stove Road and Takwa Trail that forms an intersection with the North Country Trail, uh, which is a two-track at this point. The placement of the sign leads me to believe I am on the Takwa Trail. According to my map, I am near Timberloss, probably an old logging town with a sawmill. Plodding forward through the meadow and into the forest, I reach yet another intersection within a stone's throw of the last one. I'm at a Y, and neither is marked, but both are labeled with blue blazes. The left obviously takes you to the north, that is probably the Takwa Trail, and right is the North Country Trail. So I bear right, and I soon see the familiar blue diamonds holding my hand, leading me eastward. I have been on high land for quite a while. Now the trail takes an abrupt decline right down into a swamp. For the majority of the trip, I have been high and dry, most of which on this old two-track. Now I'm plodding forward down into wet footing. The trail is still marked, and the four-wheeler still leads the way. Nervous, the blazings are scattered about, even though I am definitely on a trail. The blazes are just close enough to keep the minimum amount of confidence. I should be on a trail connecting me from the high road two tracks to a low road two track that parallels the river. So I keep walking along and I realize the two track has no evidence of vehicles or foot track. That aside is a corridor leading towards the end of Snug Harbor Road and the beaver dam I've been anxiously awaiting. Looking down, I find four sets of footprints going in both directions. 
I have found the tracks of the previous day's visitors. My trail advisors I talked to this morning. A definite confidence booster. This trail snakes along and I eventually come to an opening full of hummock sedge, which is an indicator of wet footing. The trail opens up into a V-shape where the tree line moves away from me on both sides. Straight ahead in the distance, it is completely devoid of trees, and right in front of me, a field full of Carex stricta, or hummock sedge, wet footing ahead. Thankfully, the family has beaten back the sedges, leaving a path. There are no blazes once I leave the trees, and I am sure I would have wandered around looking for the path if it were not for their activity. I realize that the four-wheeler must have turned around after that short swampy connector delivered me to the two-track. Otherwise, I would see his handiwork here. I take a weighty breath, counting my blessings. This would have been a hard situation to find my way out of. Surrounding me on three sides is swamp or marsh, and I, would, I need to head east, which is to my right. North is straight ahead where the open water is. I would have walked to the edge of the swamp and evaluated my options if it were not for the exploring family from the day before and their intelligence. I follow their tread. My feet are getting wetter with every step. I reach a small grove of trees on my right and walk up three feet on a pile of dark soil. I can see the vast, impassable wetland in front of me and to my southeast, a vast, impenetrable swamp. I am stopping. I am standing on top of an ancient beaver dam that is still holding back water to the north. A huge beaver lodge domes up and out of the water. And to my right is a post that is barely visible sticking out of the beaver dam and it has a blue blaze upon it. I look down the dam, which is about 100 feet long, and there's water on both sides. One slip, and I am in the drink. Another post at the end of the dam, a blue blaze. Reaching the end of the dam, I step down and trudge 20 feet and reach open water. Here is a frame of an old bridge that still remains and probably connected the road, and I see ahead with the two-track I've been walking until the local residents took matters into their own hands. The comeback of the beaver has washed out this road, and the humans have no means to make him change his ways. Gingerly walking the bridge, the two-track takes me to the edge of the dry forest, and I'm greeted by yet another sign. Taqua Trail straight ahead, North Country Trail to the left. Taqua Trail is actually a road, and it's a sandy road, and it's probably what I've been referring to as Snug Harbor Road. And I must have been on Taco Trail all along. The North Country Trail, however, does not have the benefit of the four-wheeler breaking the path. Well, there is no path, no tread, not even a broken twig from a moving deer. Just blazes and, ploop and, and the blue paint. Knowing the Taco Trail will lead me to the Rivermouth unit, I feel the pang of guilt for not walking the actual North Country Trail as much as I should have. And I decide to take the North Country Trail, leaving the Taco Trail behind. I decide to get my bearings and take out my compass and take a reading. The North Country Trail runs to the northeast, so if I get lost, I can head due west to run into the marsh that will lead me to Taco Trail, or due south, or even southwest. Heck, if I get really lost, I can walk north to M123 or even due east. So, nothing to worry about. I'm now walking, and becomes a bushwhack through this area full of blueberries and bracken ferns, and I'm coming to the realization that a human has not walked through this area in years. The blazes are becoming farther and farther apart, and I also see orange flagging tape between the blue blazes. Feeling that I may need to mark my route, I pull up my own roll of flagging tape. 
I'm now down to half a roll, having used a bunch of marking my signs telling others about my whereabouts. Now this will help me keep track of my whereabouts. But one mile in, winding all over the place, I cannot see the next blaze. Up goes the flagging tape. I tie it to the end of a high branch and drape it about one foot of tape downward so I can see it from a distance. I start walking, searching, scanning. Ah, there's another blaze about 100 feet away from the previous one. This scenario is what I do for the next hour. Blaze, flagging tape, blaze. I am moving quite slowly. The blazes are getting farther and farther apart, and I reach a point where I cannot find the next blue blaze. How frustrating. If the North Country Trail is to be usable, it needs to be marked. I turn around, following my flagging tape, and realizing that the blaze is directing me back are on totally different trees. I scan with my binoculars, and I'm finding very few blue blazes. Eventually, I cannot find my next flag. Well, here we are. Time to take a bearing. I go with southwest. I will either run into the Taqua Trail, which is a road, the wetland, or dark waters. So I start to walk, keeping my bearing as true as possible. Heck, I am making better time doing this than I thought. I spent about two hours hiking, about two miles, and now I'm going at a, a much better pace, probably twice as fast. 45 minutes go by, and I return to exactly where I started, the North Country Trail, Taco Trail sign. Not bad, considering I could have been spending the night out here and bushwhacking tomorrow. Walking the Taco Trail, mind you, this is a road complete with blue diamonds, I come to the conclusion that the North Country Trail used to follow this road and only recently has someone tried to route it through the park to the east without using the road. Unfortunately, they didn't finish the job. I also realized that a white smudge I saw on the North Country Trail Taco Trail sign was probably someone's attempt to warn me to go straight instead of turning left. I reach a T-intersection and my compass tells me to go left and follow the blue diamonds. The family said the road had blue blazes and diamonds, and, well, they're right. My instinct tells me to take the road, but my guilt tells me to take the trail. I know which one to listen to next time. The road parallels dark waters, and there are several pullouts for vehicles. At one pullout, a mound of sand not occupied by ants invited me to take a five-minute breather. I can hear a vehicle approaching, a black suburban. I walk into the road to get their attention, waving my arms. Vehicle stops and the window rolls down, revealing a man in his 60s accompanied by his wife. I ask, how much farther to M123? About three miles, he bellows with his deep voice. Walking to the highway, I realize that he was about two miles off. It had to be five miles worth of hiking. Eventually, I reach the highway and I can see Rivermouth Unit on the other side of the river. I cross the river on M123 and enter the park. I reach the contact station, which is closed, but will open to register campers at 5 p.m., it's 4.30, enough time to make some calls. I set my pack down, and up pulls the black suburban from before. The window rolls down. I think we were wrong. It's more like five miles. Sorry, he says apologetic. I say, that's okay. Just knowing I was headed towards M123 was enough for me, I say. Well, I feel bad because for years I coached cross-country, and I told my runners it was a three-mile run each way. You were sitting down right before the livery, and for years I had them do a round trip. think it was six miles. Oops, it was ten. <laughs> They're better off for it, I say. I make my complimentary phone calls, and Don relays that everyone knows where to find me tomorrow. The next order of business is a check-in. I walk into the contact station. I wait in line for a greeting from Violet, the ranger. The other campers are envious of my trip, and I am playing 20 questions with them. I walk up to the counter, and there's Violet. And I say, I need to register for one night. 
And then she replies, have you set up camp yet? I says, nope, I have not. Just uh, go ahead and just pick a site for me. Well, actually, you have to come back uh, after you've set up your site. The gentleman behind me pipes up, ma'am, he's on foot. Well, she doesn't care. I guess I'll follow the rules and walk all the way down and all the way back, I say grudgingly, and walk out a little pissed. Criminy, I've walked enough today. And then I, I spout off, all you better set up your camp first before registering. God forbid they sign a spot for you. And I start to put on my pack. A black van pulls up and a door opens. A man, skinny about 50, gets my attention. Hey, I heard your dilemma. Same thing happened to me before you walked in. I'll give you a ride to a site and then back to get you registered. And then I'll get you ride right back to your site. Really? Thanks, man. Hey, I'm John. I'm Tom, I say. Thanks for the ride. I found that people don't realize how far of a walk it is for me to do simple things like laundry, registration, and go to the store. I'm a fellow backpacker, says John. I understand. I'll bet Violet's longest like was the candy machine, I say. We both chuckle. I pick the site next to John's, and he finds that his wife already walked back and registered. A man of his word, he still gives me a ride back to the contact station. By 8 p.m., the campground was full of all sorts. My site is just about one mile away from the contact station across the way from Dark Waters. An occasional boat passes by, a gull squawks. The pitter-patter of feet heading to the outhouse is what entertains me for the evening. My feet are sending such intense pains through my body that the only thing I can think about is quitting. I walk across the UP. Isn't that far enough? My equipment's breaking down, the weather's starting to get crappy, and I miss my dog. But I'm almost there. I cannot quit now. All right. Another campground. Another night in the woods. Uh, I have since gone back and hiked that section of trail a couple more times when I was working on my uh, 50 Hikes in the UP book. Um, the mileage they have on the sign, and I've been on record with this for 20 some odd years, is incorrect. It is much longer than what the sign says. And I've been telling those people for years. I've told the park. I've shown the park. I've shown the park. The National Park Service GPS data. They just won't change the sign. So... If you ever hike between Lower Falls and the uh, River Mouth, it is about 16 and a half miles, not 11.7. Alright, you heard it here, and I'm going to keep beating this drum until they actually change the sign. The funny thing is, they actually replace the sign and put the same old incorrect mileage on it. So, I think their 11.7 is to the actual Taco Trail Road, not to the that's a big difference between 11.7 and 16.5. And a, half. And a lot of people are like, oh, I could do 10 miles, eh, 11.7, we can make it. But to jump to 16.5, and, a half, no. and uh, when I was running my business in the Upper Peninsula, spotting people, I actually talked out of hiking that trail. So many people, way more people I talked out of than actually hiked it because it was just too far from me. So, there you go. I hiked it too. Well, thanks again for joining me. Uh, this is Tom Funk with Trail Tales, and uh, we'll continue uh, this uh, again. Thanks for joining me.